Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Lang Winery, Lang Estate Winery, uh, with Don, Wendy, and Jesse Lang. And we'll start you guys off with a nice, easy question, which is why wine? Why not? <laughs> why wine? Well, I certainly didn't grow up with wine, you know, by and large. You know, they, uh, in, in our family, it was, uh, if there was an alcoholic beverage, it was a beer. And my parents usually would share a beer. Uh, although my, uh, my grandmother, my old German grandmother, made wine in the basement of her house. So, but I, I don't remember really drinking that. Um, she tended to like some, you know, Mogan David at Christmas. <laughs> so that, that was kind of the, in the wine heritage that I had growing up. Um, and it wasn't until I got to California, uh, you know, in, in 78, that um, uh, actual, you know, I, I, I started then, you know, really getting into uh, vinifera wines. Wine that wasn't made from rhubarb or dandelion. <laughs> dandelions or Concord grapes or something like that. Yeah. Was there a certain wine that started you on the path? Was there something you drank that thought, I, I got to have more of this? Well, yeah, and I'll, I, you know, I'll try to make that as succinct as possible. You know, Wendy loves to cook, and, and you know, we were having dinner with a, a, a Burgundy. It was, it was Maury St. Denis, uh, I think a Dujac, Maury St. Denis. And uh, I remember, you know, she cooks a fairly elaborate meal, and at the end of that meal, I went back to the, that glass of wine and, 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 and sniffed and tasted and said, oh, man, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here that I, I didn't perceive two hours ago. And so that was the Pinot Noir rele- revelation for me. When was that? That, uh, that, was, that must have been 84? Yeah, early Some, 80s. Somewhere around there, yeah. 85, yeah, somewhere around there. Pinot Noir. Yeah, maybe more, anyway, we came here in 87, so it must must have been, you know, maybe 85, 86, around in there. So, you know, and that kind of, I I think that turned us around uh, as far as um, the varietal that we wanted to do. It's like, it was a, a, a revelation. And so it's like, okay, well, we want to try and make that. So then, you know, then it became... The, the question became, well, where do you do that in the new world? And I gently suggested that they were growing grapes in Oregon. And how did you know about that? I had been here a few times. I grew up in the East Coast and then moved west and wound up in Santa Barbara. And there's a burgeoning wine industry mm-hmm. there, certainly at the time. But I was uh, vaguely aware that there were other places to grow grapes, and I loved Oregon. I'd been here a few times, and sort of in the back of my mind, a lot of people they have this quest they want to go to Oregon, and so when I figured out that they could grow Pinot Noir here, I thought we should investigate. So, and we we were able to find two Oregon Pinots at, at the little market that was, you know, on the Mesa in Santa Barbara, and. Uh, you know, they were they were fairly old wines at the time, you know, th- that we bought them. It was a 79 uh, Erath Marsh Vineyard, 
and a 1980 Irie. You know, and so those wines were, you know, at least six years old at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, but, you know, we opened, I think the first one we opened was the Erath, and we drank that bottle, and, and they said, whoa, this is amazing. And she said, well, just call them up, you know. So, so I did. We finished that bottle, and I went to the phone. I, I, I called up here to Erath, you know, stone, the next hill, here and uh, they uh, put on them the, up. on the rotary phone, right? Yeah, and and they said, "Oh, yeah, he's around here somewhere." And put the phone down, and you know, a little bit later, here comes Dick Erath on the phone. So I'm talking to Erath on the telephone for an hour, and he's imploring us to come up here, which we, you know, and two weeks later we did. But you guys were making wine in Santa Barbara for yeah. before that. We yeah. were, yeah. Yeah, we so. were working in wineries there. So tell us a little bit about about that. I'm working in Santa Barbara and making your own wine. Well, it was, you know, I'm sort of a hands-on person. I suppose we could have considered, you know, going to UC Davis or something, but, you know, there were wineries right there. So, um, you know, for me, it was it's like, okay, get in there and, you know, get, get your hands dirty and, and learn by doing. And, uh, you know, the first winery I worked for was Sanford and Benedict. Uh, which was a, a seminal Pinot Noir producer in um, Santa Barbara County. So it's pretty much Pinot Noir from the beginning. That was really what hooked you yeah, in. Yeah. And it was like, well, where can I, where can I make this? Yeah, I mean, we went through a bunch of phases. I mean, we, we went through a, a Zinfandel phase. Oh, Zinfandel, you know, it's 18% uh, alcohol. You know? it's like, and that lasted about three months. It's like, well, no, we're, we're done with this. And, and then, you know, we, we get a good bottle of Burgundy. And you see the complexity and the nuance in that, and you go, well, you know, this is... So then that became the quest. And before that, you were a musician, <clears throat> is that correct? Yeah. How, how did you decide eventually to get in, to get out of that and into wine full-time? Well, I think that's a really long story, maybe for <laughs> another time, you know, but, uh, but it was, um, I think, a, a real love for for wine, the, you know, the wine was there. I mean, I used to joke, it's like, you know, a musician pretty much has to be on the road and on the road, you know, getting good food and good wine is problematic. <laughs> so I'd say, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll just make wine, continue to make music, but I'll send my wine out on the road. But, you know, that was sort of naive. Now there's, a, there's still just a tremendous amount of travel involved in the, you know, in the wine business. But these these two, you know, take take up a lot of that. I, I don't. Uh, I send them out on the road. <laughs> no, they they go. They they take up that mantle. But um, yeah, that I, I think was uh, I think a, a, a motivating factor for sure. And just did you know how? What point did you know this was going to be your life as well? What point did you know you're going to you're going to be in wine as well? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if there was like a single defining like locus point there. It was just going to happen that way. Um, I mean, I grew up on the farm to some degree, um, but I mean, my folks started this company in the basement of their house. So it wasn't like poof, we had a winery. Um, it was very much um, uh, very organic in the way that it developed over the years. So, um, and sort of, you know, step by step. And I think just sort of grinding it out. At first we had to collaborate with a lot of our colleagues to create a wine industry and have a beachhead um, 
for a varietal and a region. I mean, in the 80s, there wasn't such a thing as Oregon wine country. Sure. You know, it was a handful of families literally hacking it out of a bunch of the wilderness and the Doug Furs <laughs> and the hazelnut farms that were here. Uh, and trying to establish an identity as a region was uh, first and foremost. So, uh, you know, I guess fast forwarding 35 years for us, and yeah, we're here in a place where, you know, you can go any place in the gl globe, in any big, big city, and you can ask for, well, I have a Valley Pinot Noir, and people know exactly where that's at and, and how good it is. Mm -hmm. And so those two things is, you know, those two things are really the, the key component for creating a region. Um, for me, uh, I think when I landed uh, like a week into viticulture and enology school in New Zealand, when I landed at Lincoln University, um, and I was just there for basically one week, and then I really felt like that was that was sort of that that tipping point for me because I was around people my, more or less my own age. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a distant, faraway hemisphere, and uh, I was learning about wine in a way that was fairly academic, but. Um, it sort of uh, it lit a, sp a spark that was already there, but it was just that was kind of the, the moment for me. Sure. Yeah. So it's back up to when you you, you, you called Dickie Rath up on the phone and he tells you to come to Oregon. So what happens next? Well, we, we came, we got in a plane and, and flew here and started looking around. And, you know, I, I, the thing that sort of amuses me in retrospect is we, we flew into Eugene and we rented a car and we drove south. You know, we, we still, we still <laughs> couldn't get it, you know. And, and it's just somewhat ironic. The two wines that just opened our eyes to, to Oregon Pinot Noir were right in the Dundee Hills here, both of them. And, and yet we flew to Eugene and went south. And we just started tasting wines and started moving our way back north. And it's going, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, and then, and then we get here, uh, finally, and we go, okay, well, this is the this place. Is it. You know, those, it was like those two bottles are pointing to the Dundee Hills. You know, it was, it was like such good fortune in the first place, you know. So that's, that's where we ended up. And then it took us about, oh, what, three, three months or so to, uh, you know, of, of exploration, you know, going back, coming back and looking around driving. I drove up and down virtually every gravel road in Yamhill County <laughs> to find this place. And, uh, and then, you know, once we found this place, we just you know, threw everything in a U-Haul uh, truck and, and drove up. What was it about this site? Well, you know, for me, it's, it's like, you know, and I, you know, I think it, we, it's the love of Pinot Noir and, and then sort of the classical paradigms for that. And, and, and you know, we, we um, you know, we looked at, at this site. It's, it's like the Cote d'Or, for instance. You know, where, where is it? South, southeast slopes. Mm -hmm. We're a little higher here than the Cote d'Or, but, you know, it's a... A, a very similar spot, the same, pretty much the same latitude, you know, um, the, the same aspect. Uh, Great soils, the volcanic jory soils that we have, well yeah. drained. So, you know, that that for us, you know, that, those were the uh, defining characteristics, uh, the, the things we were looking for. And what did you think about this this wild idea to come up to Oregon and, and, and buy this site and grow Pinot Noir? It was not that wild to me. It seemed like destiny. I mean, we really were in pursuit of making the great American Pinot Noir. Mm. And it was, it was a journey. It was, you know, we were seeking it out. And finding the spot was, it just, it felt right. Mm -hmm. 
every step of the way. I mean, it, the struggles, there were lots of struggles. You know, there was no industry here. It really was the wilderness. But I, in my mind, I had no doubt that this is what I wanted to do. So. And I don't think we ever doubted that this is the place to do it either. No. You know, I, I don't think we ever had a second thought about that. You know, there were times when, you know, the, the pushback of, against Oregon, just the concept, oh, you're growing grapes in Oregon, Where you know, that, that, that whole thing, you know, it's just, you get really weary of hearing that sort of thing. It's like, you, look, you don't taste it. I, I mean, if you, 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 we're purveying these wines to you. you. You drink this wine and then, and then tell me if we're growing wine grapes in Oregon. We're growing wine grapes in Oregon, you know, and, and slowly people start to catch on to that. And now it's not an issue anymore. No, but we never, we wondered sometimes about the industry, but we never, we never doubted the fact that we could do great Pinot here. So let's talk about the industry, industry in the early days. What were your initial impressions of Oregon wine makers, Oregon wine consumers, the, the, the potential here? Well, the makers, there, there weren't a lot of them, mm -hmm. and w most of them are, became fast friends or still dear friends. It was a very tightly knit community, and we banded together. You know, we helped each other out. We s cheered each other on, you know, shared a lot of bottles of wine and meals together, mm -hmm. um, puzzled through technical issues and harvest challenges and weather and, you know, birds and all, all of those things that come along with it. And then, as it became quite clear that we were all really on to something, we were all very passionate. You asked me the question, you know, was there ever a doubt? You know, you don't do what we did if you're filled with doubt. Um, it wouldn't have been possible. And we really banded together and carved this out of, you know, nothing. And I thought we were a little late to that dance because the founding founding people, some, you know, Erath was here in the 60s, Irie, David Lett was here in the 60s, the 70s, so by the 80s, I thought, you know, you guys have really done a lot and come a long way, and I was just really touched and honored to be welcomed to the club. So there was that, that mutual support that I don't think we could have done without. What were some of the... So those sort of challenges you faced, you mentioned challenges, or were there specific challenges like technical challenges or what were the things you thought you had to overcome that maybe you weren't expecting to have to deal with? Oh, well, you know, for, for me, I, I, I think we um, had more trouble than I would have liked to carve out that, that, uh, per, that share of mine, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, we had no media outlets here to speak of. No marketing departments. No marketing departments. <laughs> no, yeah. no marketing budgets. You know, who's, yeah. who's going to root for, for Oregon Pinot Noir? I mean, o Oregon winemakers, basically. And, you know, that was pretty much it. You know, so that was, you know, that was difficult. It's like, how do you carve out a share of mine for, for people who basically, you know, they don't hear you so much. So you just got to keep after and keep after it. And I think there were times in the 90s when we were going, it's like, you know, are they ever going to catch on? And I can go into, into some more detail about, you know, major publications who were push, always pushing back against Oregon and promoting California at Oregon's expense, you know. And it, that got wearisome, you know, because we knew what we had. You know, it's, it's like, 
And then I, finally it, it started to break down. And then it broke down in sort of an expo exponential way. Bang. And, and all of a sudden we've got an industry, we've got a reputation, and we're, we're known uh, worldwide now. But um, it, 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 those initial years are really tough. Was there a moment or an event that caused that, the, the breakdown, the finally begrudgingly admitting that Oregon might be making some good wine? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I'd, I'd like to think there was, but you know, I think it was <clears throat> in, incremental. A lot of it early on was, was incremental. I mean, if you, you look at Lett trying to, trying to sell, you know, grow his Pinot on the next hill over here in the 60s and <laughs> go out and sell that in the 60s in the 70s and the 80s and we're here and it's still really tough mm -hmm. you know to to change consciousness you know and then somewhere in the 90s it starts to shift because you know there are a few more of us and we're getting out there and we just keep telling the story and we tell it to, to people who tell other people and pretty soon you know there's that groundwork of support for what we're doing sure. building building a industry one bottle at a time, you know, and yeah. one fan at a time, one pallet at a time. And that's sort of like, you slay that beast by a thousand cuts kind of thing. I don't think there was any seminal event that no. pushed yeah. it over the top. But yeah, once you start to gain that inertia, then it sort of became self-fulfilling and, and uh, yeah. So I think, I think Oregon Pinot Camp, uh, you OPC. know. OPC. Uh, yeah. Uh, we helped start that in the year 2000. That was the first year of OPC. And yeah, that's been a big, a big event for our industry. You know, it's a, another one of those collaborative things or you know, Oregon wineries getting together and you know, pulling people in in the trade, mm -hmm. pulling them in here to show them what Oregon's about. It, it, I mean, the concept to me was absolutely brilliant. Rather than try to hammer it out in, with, in media centers, get the, uh, the tastemakers here and, and show them what we have. You know, pour the wines. We've got the food here. You know, we've, we've got, got the, the place. Yeah. We've got the place. Yeah. We've got like, the people. And and these uh, people, you know, the ones who didn't go back home and pack their bags and move here, <laughs> you know, would go out and they were emissaries for, for Oregon yeah. wine and still are to this day. I mean, it's a fabulous event. It, it, you know, it is the, the, the benchmark uh, event of, of my summer season. When you got here, did you have any concept that this could eventually look the wine industry could eventually look like this. There could eventually be 700 plus wineries and international fame and, and, and glory. Well, yeah, I don't know. You know, the fame and glory, I, I just, I, I, all I wanted was recognition. Uh -huh. you know, not for me or, or Lang Winery, but for, for the fact that, you know, I mean, we were so convinced and, and so resolute about what we were doing. Just, just recognize that, what, you know, what we're doing is, is top notch. Top quality, you know, to be, you know, um, superstars or anything like that. I don't, you know, I don't, that was I, not you know, the goal. No, I, it wasn't the goal, and and I'm I'm not sure it's a goal now. But I I, I will acknowledge that you know we're more popular than I thought we were going to be, you know, as as an industry. And not like better than Burgundy or better than certain regions of California, but just world class. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. just like the wines that we're making are world class and they're in that category. And that means different things to different people. But you can't, once you establish that, really, that, that sort of reputation in that upper echelon of, of quality wines, that can't really be taken away. That's true. So when you got here, how did you sort of divide up? How did you figure out who was going to do what? Whose responsibilities were going to be what? 
There's all responsibilities. That's it. That's every single one. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I Gosh, think, we were it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the early days, we we did it. You know, when when I we were the tasting room help. Okay. So when I sold a bottle of wine, or when she sold a bottle of wine, and I handed it to the customer, <laughs> she tried to keep me, you know, off to the. <laughs> But when I, I finally handed that bottle to a customer, I calculated that I had already handled the bottle uh, six or seven times. And that's before, that's just after it was bottled, sure. let alone all the work from the farming right, to the winemaking. Right, right. yeah, I'm just yeah. saying that, end of it, you know, and I started thinking about it in those terms, like, wow, you know, I, that may not be very efficient. It's all we can afford. You know? yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of time spent hand labeling bottles, you know, front label through a glue gun, wipe off the edges, turn 180 degrees, back label, put a capsule on it, capsule spinner, one down, 11 more, full case, 55 <laughs> more cases, one pallet. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a lot of handiwork. Yeah, we, we did everything. We did the farming. We did the harvesting the first couple of years. It took us a while before our own grapes came mm -hmm. to fruition. We purchased from um, some fabulous vineyards early on. We had the good fortune in some of those vineyards we still work with today. So those are those long-term sure. relationships that we've, we've formed here. And, uh, yeah, we just did everything that needed to be done. Was there a, excuse me, was there a favorite part of the, of the year or a favorite part of the process for you? Did you have a certain part you really looked forward to? I mean, you, well, no, it's a, it's a it's just one big question. party, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 isn't that funny? It's like I can understand, you know, where a question like that comes from because, it, you know, it's it's sort of that's what the human experience is about, I guess, basically. You know, so it's like the, the you know the peak experience, and you know what. Um, but for us, I, I mean, you think harvest, you know. Bud break? Bud break, you know, when the, so the vineyard springs into action in the spring, you know, that, that, that's... For me, it's when we're 80% through harvest <laughs> and everything's going pretty well and we have an awesome vintage that we made good on the promise yeah. of a whole growing season mm -hmm. and you can finally kind of take your foot off the, the pedal a little bit, exhale, nobody got hurt, we have awesome wines, um, and we made good on the promise that started in, in March and now it's late October. That, that's the time for me where it's like you can actually say, wow, we, we, we did it or we got it done and, and the wines are fantastic. And because um, there's a lot of anxiety up until that point, because once those grapes are in the winery, you can feel a little bit more relaxed. But until that point, um, you haven't you haven't really done anything because it's just all value added in the on the farm through every month that goes by. And then when you start to receive the grapes. So it's a lot of uh, a lot of equity hanging out there in the farms. And once you bring them in and, and the wines are fantastic, then. That's, uh, that's for me the moment where, that, that's the moment I look forward to above all. Sure. And was that your question? What was your question? I was just curious if there was a part, a part of the year that you look forward to the most. Look, part, look, part look, looking cycle. forward to, yeah. Golly. Yeah, I, I think that's what threw me, was the looking forward part. You know, because enjoyed the most. Yeah, 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 or enjoy you know, some of those uh, typical things. You know, and, and I think for us, a, a lot of the times, you know, we're sort of so immersed in, in what we're doing. You know, we, the, you know, is there something you look forward to? Well, 
you know, harvest. Well, it's coming. I, I, so in the most literal sense, we're looking forward to it. But are we really you know, waiting in anticipation for harvest? Well, no, we're not. You know, there's so much work that needs to be done. You know, you're, you're just sort of immersed in the whole, the whole um, process of, of, of a vintage year. You know, you're just immersed in it. And yeah. it's never Every, static. No. Every season has its own it has its own like pulse, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and there's there, it never goes away that pulse. So there's just so many aspects to to what we do. If you're a if you farm, if you do production, if you run a business, you know, if you're in distribution, you know, international distribution, wholesale, the taste room here. You know, our hospitality is mm-hmm. open 360 days a year. So it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of moving parts. So just let's talk about your training a little bit. You mentioned earlier New Zealand. Why, yeah. why New Zealand? Uh, well, Oregon State, my alma mater, so go Beavs. Um, world champion baseball team. Um, and, uh, well, I went to school at Oregon State. Um, I spent two years um, in California. Um, I was uh, working under Bruce McGuire at Santa Barbara Winery for uh, a couple of vintages. Uh, moved back and enrolled at Oregon State. And Oregon State had a fantastic agricultural program. Um, it's a land grant university, and I had a great opportunity to uh, to have Barney Watson um, from Taiyi Sellers um, uh, oversee uh, a scholarship transfer to uh, Lincoln University in New Zealand. So I applied for a scholarship, somehow cajoled them into giving it to me, <laughs> and I was there for uh, for almost nine months um, on the South Island, and uh, it was a wonderful experience for me and shored up a lot of my chemistry and sort of technical background. Um, and that really helped to sort of solidify my, my direction. Um, and vineyard, too. It's like you came back with a lot of... A lot of ideas for viticulture, for yeah. Yeah, I think we moved everything over from, you know, to VSP at that time. And, yeah, it's, um, that's a bit of my background. But, you know, I mean, you... I, I learned, I think, a lot by osmosis. So a lot of what growing up in the winery and the vineyard really helped to, to teach me... Um, structurally what we needed to be doing, um, qual- qualitatively what we needed to be doing, and uh, from my colleagues too. I mean, I'm, I'm really blessed to be second generation and have you know, people like Wynne Peterson Nedry and Adam Campbell and the Sokol Blossers um, uh, and everybody, everybody else throughout the whole valley that's been so kind to share information, um, to be you know, a shoulder to lean on and <laughs> sometimes a shoulder to cry on, but... Uh, yeah, just really fortunate that uh, we have such a great context of people here. The fabric's really strong of, of our community. Sure. sure. Well, what were your impressions of the New Zealand wine industry? Uh, well, school was pretty hard. I remember that. I didn't get a whole lot of time to hang out. And I did play rugby, but that was fleeting. Um, yeah, I really like the wines. The, the white wines uh, surprised me a bit, uh, especially recently. I mean, as a country, it's really well known for Sauvignon Blanc. Um, which is a, maybe like 90% of their export. Some of the Pinot Noirs from Central Otago coming out are really nice. Um, Marlboro. Um, I think the industry was still, as a, as, a, as a sort of a new world wine region, it was still developing to some degree in a parallel sense to the Willamette Valley. But I really quite like the wines. I mean, the people are fantastic. Um, so, and I think it has a lot in common with the Northwest, just New Zealand as a, as a you know, country and it's, Para Islands, and I think there's a lot of cultural similarities. So I, I fell in love with the place immediately, um, and have extreme fond memories and 
and quite like having um, you know, Kiwis come to Oregon and, and kind of reminisce about those stories and sure. that time. Sure. So I'm curious how you, and this is a question for all of you, uh, how you sort of developed your, your wine philosophy, wine making philosophy, uh, hospitality philosophy, how you sort of, what, you, what your initial ideas were and how that's evolved over the years. Yeah, I mean, I can address the winemaking part. You know, for me, again, it, it, it has to do with classical paradigms. You know, and I, I think we were looking, and Jesse's heard this a billion times, you know, it's, it's like... <laughs> it's tattooed it's here, like, yeah. It's like, you know, balance, structure, and texture. You know, this, this is sort of a mantra. You know, it's not a, a really fine wine. It's not all about gobs of fruit, you know, really, you know, forward. It's, it's also about balance, structure, and texture. So the classical uh, elements that uh, make a wine really, really good with food, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a wine that you take to the table. I, I think those, you know, historically, those are the wines that were, you know, most important to a culture. I mean that's you're preserving the grapes, preserving that harvest, and you you want to bring it you want to bring it to the table and have it with dinner, you know, or or lunch, or, or breakfast. You know, like, <laughs> Pinot Noir, <laughs> not just for breakfast anymore, right? <laughs> have so, dinner too. I, I think that's where we were coming from. You know, it's, it's like the, those sort of you know classical elements. You know, so like you asked about you know why this location? Mm -hmm. Well, this location is because it, it's similar to the Cote d'Or. You know, similar to you know the the great um, uh, domains in Burgundy. And the wines were you know, trying to do the same thing. And making wines that are what I call kind of varietally and regionally correct. And making wines that really speak to a sense of place. Um, fortunately for me, you guys kind of established that sense of place. And um, I, I find carrying through with that, that commitment to wines that have a thumbprint, that have a sense of DNA, um, is really critical for making fine wines and to make wines in the Willamette Valley. You know, hopefully they're world class, but also they have a real identity uh, which I think at the end of the day is what makes wine so unique and so special is it can really speak to a sense of terroir and a sense of place. And uh, I think that, that plays a big part in my philosophy for making wine, making excellent wine, but making wine that, that has to be kind of ubiquitously Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. It has to have those components and, and you know, a, a sense of place. What about from like the hospitality side? I mean, especially, especially early on when their when their idea of a tasting room was kind of quaint and, and you know. We had no idea that people would travel down this road to the winery. So honestly, a tasting room was not in the original scheme of things. Mm -hmm. We had planned on being open a few times a year and just doing direct wholesale, mm -hmm. and that's how it started. We had our first open house. I can't remember if it was a Thanksgiving or Memorial Day, but um, we were stunned by how many people showed up on our doorstep. I mean, literally, we were opened at 11. We had people lined up around that, the house in those days at 10 o'clock in the morning. So literally your doorstep. <laughs> literally the doorstep. And I had you know, labeled up a few cases of wine and I baked some bread and had some cheese out and thought that'll probably do us for the three-day weekend. Well, that was gone by noon. And it uh, that, that got my attention. It was like, okay, that was, that was great. And then it was a three-day weekend and it happened the next day and the next day. And we thought, 
wow, Oregonians are just the best. <laughs> Come up down this road, it's you know two miles of gravel, and you know, part of it's paved now, so the journey isn't quite so so perilous. But sorry, um, it was it was really heartening. And then the, the tasting room, back to the sort of orga organic roots, evolved of its own. People would just keep showing up, and it was wonderful. But some days a little inconvenient. If we weren't here, I was on a tractor or something. So then we posted hours, and that evolved. And well, here we are, 31 years later, and we're open, you know, seven days a week except for the major holidays. Sure. Um, we're just happy to have people come visit us, see what we're doing. You know, back to that sense of place. You know, here's a bottle of wine from the grapes that we grew out there. You can hang out and, you know, look at the vines and taste the wines and, you know, talk to the people that made it and grew it. And we want to make our message accessible, too. You know, we want to empower our customers and make them feel comfortable with their own palates. Mm -hmm. And if their palates enjoy our wine, that's even better. That's a win-win for both. But, um, you know, I've always been of, of the nature of trying to make people comfortable about their own tastes rather than saying, you're tasting this Pinot and this is, you know, it's redolent of blackberries and all of these other things. You know, I, I would rather draw them out and have them come to their own conclusions about our wines. And I think those people are still our customers all these years mm -hmm. later. You know, they understand what we're doing, they understand why we're doing it, and they know very well where we're doing it. And I don't think you can do any better than that. So. It's still the tasting room ethos, right? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, yeah, empowerment, empowerment, yeah. Just trying to, trying to say, you know, suggest to people that, you know, well, Wendy has a great phrase, it's your palate, it's your party. <laughs> <laughs> That's her succinct way yeah. of, of, of saying, you know, just take charge of it. You, you know, I, I mean, I can help you with maybe some descriptors, but I, I don't know what you're tasting. You know, that, that's your experience, and you, you, you should just explore. It's one of the beautiful things about wine. It's so yeah. much fun to explore. And then you can talk about the food component and, you know, all the wonderful bounty we have here in Oregon, you know, all the seasonal options. You can get pretty excited about it. So we're sitting here in your new tasting room celebrating your, your 30th anniversary last year as, mm -hmm. uh, as a winery here. Tell us about the concept behind this and kind of the, the impetus to build this. Well... I think, you know, we, we needed more space because, you know, more visitors, you need more space. And I've, I was trying to maximize um, the, the views, mm -hmm. you know, especially with the deck out there. We had a and long time to contemplate. <laughs> Ten years, yeah. At least, <laughs> look, look, how this Looking for light and, light and air, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, this particular space is built so that it can, it can almost be a, a, an outdoor space. I mean, you put that door behind you up, and that whole wall uh, collapses, or, you know, not the whole wall, but, you know, that, that whole door system there, you know, folds up, and this is, can almost be like a, like a porch. Um, so, bring the vineyard you know, inside. Yeah, and there's no substitute for place, you know. I mean, you can taste wines any place in the world, but when you, when you actually visit a winery and a vineyard, that's, that's an experience that rarely leaves human beings. You know, uh, and tasting, we all taste lots of wines. I mean, have the good fortune to taste a lot of wines, but when you're actually there and it has a sense of place, that's an experience that people just don't forget. So being able to um, accommodate that and, and be very hospitable towards that experience is something that we, we strive to do. 
let's talk about working with family, which is always a question I like to ask when we have families. Um, we know this has been a, a notoriously difficult industry on marriages, so we always like to ask couples who are still together, what's your, what's wow. your secret? Uh, how did you do this long working together? That's hysterical. It's, well, you're, what, what did you say? No, notoriously difficult? Notoriously difficult. You try to say it as gently as you can. Yeah. <laughs> that's not putting it on the That's a great spot. phrase, though. In, in notoriously difficult. Yeah. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, for us, I think what, what we've always said, and, and we try to adhere to this, is never lose your sense of humor. You know, you, you can't lose your sense of humor. Ever. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, I don't know. I think, yeah. is there a secret? <laughs> Other than that, I really don't know. It's like, uh, you know, mm. be doggedly. You just have to be supportive of each other and just keep at it. You know, if it works, it works. I don't think there's a secret to it. But, uh, knowing that, you know, being able to compartmentalize, I guess, that this is a business, it's a good business, mm -hmm. it's not me, I think that helps, kind of, you know, it took yeah. a while to get there, that was a journey, because in the early days, you really, it's all you, it's all you do, but if you can keep some perspective. I think that's what yeah, I'm trying to say. Compartmentalize. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's like, you know, don't, don't conflate the winery with us. If the, if the, you know, if the, if the winery's not doing so well and we're not doing so well, then, you know, then that's, that's a, a double whammy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if, you, if you can compartmentalize and say, well, still a pretty good life. We're still living in Oregon. We, yeah. you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of good things happening. Solve one problem at a time. Yeah, look at the big thing, but and we have excellent wine to drink too. Yeah, and then there's doesn't hurt. Wine, yeah, always. You know, and uh, honestly, I mean, you, you say that you know, sort of jokingly, I, I think, but uh, no, and, and, no, I didn't. Seriously, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's it, it, that's seriously part of it. I, it it's a more philosophical level. It, it's it's like if you're this life isn't it's it's a kind of a, a unique life in that we live where we work. Mm -hmm. So we never get away from it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but we're also, you know, this, this is our life. And, and you wake up and you look at the vineyard and you can say, there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done. There are a whole lot of challenges in that vineyard. And, we, you know, this, this vineyard is evolving. There's going to be challenges. And, you know, we got to be, and, and, and go off on that tag. <clears throat> but simultaneously, you can look out and say, that's really beautiful. And maybe you don't even <clears throat> say that. You know, you just feel it. You, you, you look out and say, well, this, this is where I live. This is, my, this is my life. And I think that's what we try to um, never lose sight of. The really nice wine that we get to drink. You know, the food that we get to eat and the air that we get to breathe here. And the community we get to be a part of. The community of that. that we're yeah. a part of. Yeah. It's, like, it's pretty okay. good. <laughs> it's hard to beat. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is a life we created, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, for all the trials and tribulations, it's hard to, hard to match. 
What about you joining the family business? What was that like? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been an evolution to be sure. Um, it has challenges, but a lot of great rewards too. Um, I take it seriously, too seriously sometimes, but you know, again, trying to like, like move things forward and you know, carry the mantle that they created and our neighbors created. So it's, um, it's something that I always have, I think to some degree, like a little bit of that chip on my shoulder. Cause I remember how it was growing up and how, how challenging it was to carve out a niche that was you know, world-class Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. So um, I take that, that, I don't know, take that motivation forward to continue the, you know, carrying the flag for the Willamette Valley. And how do you balance that kind of past with future, especially you kind of between the generations, the second generation and the winemaker, uh, you have a legacy estate here, but you also have to think about a growing industry. Sure. So how do you balance that? What are, you, what are, your, what are, your, what are your perspectives on that? Well, I think you have to be attuned to what's happening and how the, the larger um, mechanical aspects of the wine industry are happening around you. Uh, that we have seen a fair bit of change here in the Willamette. I think like to some degree the last 10 years has been even more transformative than the prior 40. Um, so, but carrying through like your, you know, your core, um, your core tenets of making great wines, growing great grapes and just continuing to fine tune your your game and and grind out the the singles and doubles that help you you know carry your team forward and, and make a better product um you know those those are the things that you know balance structure texture that kind of drive our winemaking philosophy and our better style and just continuing to improve i mean there's nothing i think we're doing as second generation winemakers that are that is you know groundbreaking per se but I think we, we tweak the dials on so many levels to continue to improve and, and make better ones. I really appreciate the baseball metaphor there. That <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, I know you're working on a, you have an interesting experiment with con concrete um, fermentation tanks. Tell us sure. about that. Yeah, well we do, um, all of our fermentations are uh, for, for Pinot Noir, one and a half ton fermenters. Um, obviously, um, you know, different styles uh, and different vessels for fermentation, for primary and for storing and aging too. Uh, we just bought a new uh, concrete egg. So concrete as a, as, a, uh, uh, as a product has been around a long time, uh, but they fine tune its porosity uh, in the way that it works uh, with air exchange. Uh, we found it to be great with uh, our Pinot Gris Reserve and our Three Hills Cuvée Chardonnay, two of our 2017 white wines were the first wines uh, now released. Uh, so we're actually tasting a wine that was fermented and aged in the concrete vessel. So it's been a really nice uh, tool in the tool bag for our, our fermentation techniques and, and stylistically the wines that we can make. How did you come across the method? This is the first I've heard of it, so I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I'm not, again, not groundbreaking at all. Um, well, there's concrete, there's a lot of people here in the Valley have, have been using concrete uh, before us, but uh, yeah, we did a fair bit of research um, and uh, the products that we decided to purchase um, was a 500, a 500 gallon tank. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun thus far and I can't wait to see it. The wines with a little bit of age on them. And sure. you know, you can see how a new technique works on its own and within other wineries, mm -hmm. but understanding how that is synthesized within your winery is very interesting and always a learning process. So you mentioned a second ago, and again, a question for all of you, you mentioned a second ago, like the changes in the last 10 years. I'm curious what the biggest changes uh, you've seen in the industry since your time, and, and that can go again for all of you, biggest changes in the industry uh, since you've been a part of it. You know where to start. <laughs> you know, try try, try to maybe um, 
define where that question is going. I, I mean, it could could be two ways: the Oregon wine industry or wine industry in, in America. Oregon specifically, but I'd be curious on the larger industry as well. Yeah, well, I think Oregon specifically has been transformed by the influx of interest in Oregon wine and and money, you know, a fair amount of corporate money coming in, and you know that's you know without getting into a macroeconomic discussion <laughs> for for the interview, you know that that definitely has an impact. Let's just leave it at that. Good or bad? Well, it depends on your perspective. You know, if you're an investor and you live in Manhattan and you, you know you've, you you now have a, a winery in Oregon, that's a really good thing. If you're a family uh, winery in Oregon, you know maybe you're competing against somebody who doesn't care whether or not they lose money. So you choose. <laughs> what other what other changes in addition to just money and size with the with the kind of like I said the kind of um, Acceptance of Oregon as a fine wine place. What else has come with that in addition to just pure capital and size? Is there anything else that's changed? Is there more pressure on you now to produce great wine? I don't think there's more pressure. I think there's more competition to some degree. Um, uh, yeah, I, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> that, that doesn't abate. Uh, that, that's an internal pressure mm -hmm. to, to make world-class wines. Um, that just never goes away and you never quite achieve it. Like, you know, it's not, it's not a level that you just achieve and then you walk away. It's something every year that we have to, we have to work towards um, because, you know, we're not putting together a bunch of cardboard boxes that are exactly the same every year. Every vintage has its own, its own profile and, and we have to abide by that and try to make good on it. Um, in terms of the microeconomics of it, I think there's a lot more competition. I think the three tier system has changed wholesaling. Wholesalers have changed the, the landscape, um, in, you know, nationally and internationally too. Uh, just the way trying to take wines to market. So, um, you know, if you're a consumer and you care about quality and you care about, you know, farm family farms and you care about craft, you're going to have to go out and do some work on your own to go get those wines. Yeah. Would you say? Oh, oh do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say overall the wine industry is in a better place now? Oregon wine industry is in a better place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it is a proper thing now, if you yeah. will. It is an industry <coughs> as opposed to just a few voices in the wilderness. You know, we spoke earlier on about, you know, people would ask, you're doing what, where exactly? Is <laughs> making wine in Oregon? And, you know, not to be repetitive, but we would go out and try to sell Oregon wine. They didn't under people at the market at large. Where's Oregon? Where's Oregon? <laughs> you go to wine there. And then time goes by and you ask about that pivotal point, and I don't think I can put a date on it, but certainly the mid-90s, where the Willamette Valley became known. It's like, oh, Oregon. Well, where in Oregon? The Willamette Valley. Nope. That was immensely gratifying to be able to go to, into an account in Manhattan and have them even know that there was a Willamette Valley. And then roll that forward a few more years, and it was like, yeah, 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 Willamette Valley, but where? And that's something that the second generation did really beautifully and elegantly, was creating the micro-AVAs mm -hmm. without a whole lot of, you know, uh, fuss and feathers, if you will. They worked amongst themselves. I think that's a legacy that, you know, us old-timers um, can feel 
that they're playing forward is that collaborative effort. You know, yes, there's some competition, but you know, there's an end game. And the end game is to raise the vis- visibility for Oregon wine specifically, and then we can get down to the different AVAs and the sub-AVAs. I believe that Dundee Hills was the first micro-AVA. And then back to going out into the marketplace, it's like, yeah, yeah, where in the Willamette Valley? It's like, oh, the Dundee Hills. And then they want to know, where in the Dundee Hills? (laughs) It's like, that is so exciting. That's, to me, one of the most gratifying things from a marketing standpoint, from a visibility standpoint, that the world at large knows not only about Oregon, about our wonderful valley, but about our very distinctive AVAs and soils and all the microclimates. So, how else have consumers changed? I'm curious uh, about that. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> consumers! Gosh, oh, wow. you know what, one thing I, I can address okay. right away. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like you know, back in the '80s, you know, when we were the tasting room help. Uh, people would come in and they say they'd want a white Zinfandel. You know, yeah. <laughs> seriously, a white Zinfandel. And, and we're, you know, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. You know, we never hear that. Any, well, we're not in the tasting room so much, but, you know, we talk to a lot of people. No. You know, and, and we never hear that. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe nobody drinks it anymore. I, I don't. Do you have anything sweeter? You know, that you see hear that a lot. That, that yeah. You're hearing yeah. that less You're like, less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fermented dry. <laughs> I think they're more sophisticated. Yeah. They're yeah. better, they're better educated. They're, I mean, there's, there's more for them to learn, and they are learning. And it's, it's just a joy. Wine's a thing, too. I mean, we didn't have food channels, you know, back yeah. in the 80s. Um, and we didn't have wine. Wine wasn't, um, it didn't have the, I don't know, level of success or level of recognition cachet. that it does, cachet that it does today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go to almost any little store, wine store in the country and find amazing wines from all over the globe. You know, 30, 40 years ago, that was an anomaly. Mm-hmm. Um, so having that you know, and, and the internet too, with the World Wide Web, being able to order wine online has been incredible too. So people are interested in learning about great wine and having great wine, acquiring great wine. They're able to do so in ways that are much more open to them than than was in the past. What is it about the your story that you've found over the years that has struck a chord with people, or not just not just your story, but the, the small family farm Oregon wine story? Is there is there something about that that keeps people coming back? Oh, I think there's no doubt about it. You know, that authenticity thing. Um, it's, I think, to some degree, it's been packaged a lot. But when it is right. the real deal, it resonates with people. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they come to Lang Winery, they talk to the Langs, <laughs> you know. Because we're authentically authentic. <laughs> right? That's pretty yeah. neat. We're not Trademark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, we're not well, making, no, but it not is making an, this it up. It is an issue. Yeah, it, it's definitely an issue, and, and we're, you know, we're definitely the Langs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what do you see happening in the Oregon wine industry in the next, say, ten to twenty years? What's what's the future? Uh, are you investing in that? That's a question. Um, I, what's the future? That's hard to say. Um, I mean, the future for us is to continue to, to fine-tune our game, um, you know, to, to grow more, I think, complex wines, uh, more sustainably, too. I mean, that's one of the things I think we're all very proud of. The Oregon wine industry has carried that banner uh, for our country. I think it's fair to say on the sustainability front. Um, one thing, you know, you guys met my baby daughter when she just came in earlier, and Thinking about Skyler's future for me weighs on me in ways that 
I don't think always happen unless you have children. And um, considering her future for the planet and for our region is something that, that's becoming, you know, an everyday consideration for me. Uh, and I'm really proud that the Oregon wine industry has taken sustainability um, to heart and have really uh, made that uh, a tenant for our viticulture. And I think you see that, um, you know, throughout our buildings, throughout the winemaking process, throughout our farming. Um, it's something that Oregon should really be well known for, and I'm very proud of that. What are some of the challenges on the horizon here in Oregon? What are some of the things you're concerned about as you look at the future? Well, it, go, it goes, you know, back to, I think, you know, it's like I, we, we answered your question sort of on the Oregon front, but not on the national or international front, you know, just in terms of the marketplace and the consolidation. Tremendous consolidation, uh, you know. So, you know, the three-tier system, all of that stuff, which is, you know, a, a, a challenge. And you know, Jesse deals with that mainly, and, and Wendy too, um, and, and could weigh in on that. You know, what what what's the future there? Ooh, boy, that's a that's a tough uh, that's a tough question. You know, more consolidation, consolidating the already consolidated. You know, it's I I think that's the that's the arc of it. And you know, how does a, a family winery in Oregon deal with that? You know, that's a tough. It's place. a crowded marketplace. So there's no doubt. I mean, we we work and live in one of the most competitive industries on the planet. We really do. Um, so trying to tell your story in an authentically authentic way. Uh, is very important, um, but you have to have I an mean, ability to showcase what you're doing, where you're doing it, and why, and how it's sustainable to the future, I think is really important for consumers that appreciate that. Um, not everybody, you know, a lot of people just want price points, um, but we want quality, and we, we have that, I don't want to say it's naive notion, but it's the notion that, that built our industry, which is every single bottle of wine is a handshake to a consumer. And that wine has to punch above its weight. It has to be better than, than what people expect. Um, and if it's not, you start to erode the, the reputation that we, we've, you know, has been hard fought and I think to a large degree won. So it already is a, a legacy business. Do you have plans on keeping it a legacy business for the foreseeable future? Definitely. <laughs> Skyler, little so. Skyler, the winemaker. Little Skyler, yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I'm glad we had a girl because I think women have better palates than men. So I'm stoked <laughs> she'll be... She'll be carrying it forward um, quite well, I think. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you have, and this is for any of you, what advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? That could be at any, any level of the industry. Yeah, I think it's an exciting, dynamic industry to be a part of. I think the people are fantastic. So um, my only suggestion would be pull your weight, you know, and make great wine, period. And those two things. And, you know, be a part of the industry, too. It's not just about laying a state winery. Um, it's about Team Willamette Valley. And uh, that's, that's something, that collaborative nature is something we're all very proud of um, and is still here today and thriving. Um, and I think that, that that rising tide concept is something that we've all, we've all paid forward many, many times over. And that was shown us that level of hospitality when we first moved here. Advice? Oh, okay. Well, I can just tell a little anecdote about when we first got here. This is 1987, and we went went to a party of Fred and Mary Benoit, 
uh, it was a Chateau Benoit back in the day. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah. He interviewed yeah. them last year. Oh, he did. Oh, geez. Lovely. I would, I, oh, and Mary, Mary and I were on the Yamaha County Winery Board for, Winery Association Board for a long time. So I, I, I just adored her. But the first time I met her was at this party, and we were introduced, and they said, you know, hello, how are you, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and the first thing out of her mouth then was uh, I, uh, when, when she was made aware that we were coming here to start a wine, she said, I hope you're well capitalized. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, well, so good to meet you too. <laughs> and, and that was... And the answer was no. <laughs> the answer is no. Sorry to disappoint. But anyway, yeah, that, that's, that's my story about that. How about you? I, I really life? can't add to that and probably shouldn't. <laughs> well, that's all the questions that I have prepared for you. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Any more great stories at the end here or uh, anything else I should have asked? No. I mean, in terms of like the viticulture, I think that's one thing that's taken huge strides in the Willamette Valley. You know, our, our attention to detail viticulturally is light years from where it was when we started. Mm -hmm. um, the winemaking for us is still fairly hands off. Uh, so that's something that, you know, trying to tell the story of the, the grapes that you grew during a certain year mm -hmm. and making sure that, again, that's manifest in the final bottle of wine. Um, but our, our techniques, sustainability-wise, but also just techniques for, for farming wine grapes have improved drastically over the years. Also, the, you know, there's one thing that we really enjoy uh, now and are really excited about is, is Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've you know, talked about you know, Pinot Noir plenty, but Chardonnay is a Burgundian varietal, yeah. you know, and, and that is part of that portfolio for yeah. us, you know, being able to make uh, and drink. A great Chardonnay, and we're we're really our 31-year overnight success for Chardonnay, which is great. Uh, but yeah, it's the the Chardonnays that we're making are world class, and that, I mean we're all really pumped excited. about it. Very excited. I mean they 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 are that good, and will continue to get better. And we're I think you you know you guys have talked to a lot of Oregon winemakers in the last while, but I think everybody you know you you hear that drum beat, and it's just getting louder and louder for Chardonnays, and uh, we're we're stoked to be a part of that. Do you find you're finally getting people to get on board with Oregon Chardonnay versus what their concept mm -hmm. of Chardonnay yeah. is? Definitely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, that's exciting. Anything else? Mm -hmm. Last words? That's it. <laughs> well, thank you all very yeah, much. Yeah, thank, thank you. I appreciate your time you. and your thoughts. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.